Apostles' Creed in there? Good song. Very good song. Rich song. We're about two, two and a half, three months into a study of the book of Hebrews. And this morning, you've gotten to hear three different passages read out loud already. Three different passages from the author of Hebrews. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. Chapter 5, verse 11 through 6, verse 12. And chapter 10, verses 26 to 39. Now I realized that two of those passages were read by real tender, sweet voices. But if you were listening carefully to the words in those passages, at some point you would have had to have swallowed hard. At some point you would have had to have thought, wow, that author is pretty harsh. He didn't soften his words much. He, he cut right to the heart. Now this past week during my study time, I took these passages of Scripture, and instead of flipping in each page each time I wanted to look for it, I, I copied and pasted them onto two sheets of paper that I could put side by side. And I remember about Monday looking at them, thinking to myself, wow, did the author wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Did he really just say that? Was, was there one too many times that somebody gave him a suggestion after class of how things could have been better? Did he get one too many parchment pad notes of, you know, I liked this, but I didn't like that, so maybe we could go this way. Did he really say the things that he normally may have kept to himself? These were some difficult passages of Scripture that we read. And I wonder, did he really mean for them to be put into Scripture, to be put into the Bible. Did he really speak, speak as bluntly as he did? What do we, as First Church, do with the harsher words like this? I mean, they are Scripture. They are inspired. Do we use them as a correction for us? Or do we simply say, well, that was for another time and another place? And Lord help us that we never have to have anybody talk to us like that. I want to pray. And then I want to ask God what he wants to say to us through these passages in Scripture. God, I thank you for uh, our time in worship and song this morning. It did well for my soul. And I thank you for my time of study this past week in this text. I thank you for the time that we're about to have. Lord, I want you to speak this morning. I want your words to be heard. I ask, Lord, for a receptivity from myself first and, and from those who are sitting in here. I ask that you would, uh, Lord, that you would be more known after this. And I ask that at the end of it, you would be brought glory. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we finished our sermon, uh, really hung on the point of being anchored to Christ. This came out of Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, where the author says, This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Now, in some ways, we should have already been ready for this nautical comment because of the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. The author says this, so we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. There's two key words in the Greek that the author uses in that verse. It's prochain and pararine. And I think I'm pronouncing them correct. If I don't, or if I'm not, oh well. 
The English versions of these words say something like this. Pay close attention to. That's how well, one way we could translate the word prochain. Listen extra closely. Now this word can also mean to moor a ship. A mooring is a permanent structure that a, that a ship is attached to or secured to so that it stays in place. So instead of saying pay extra close attention to, the author could be saying tie yourself up to this. Something that won't go anywhere. And this definition would make a lot of sense considering one of the ways you could define the next word, pararime. Normally this word is defined as slipping past. Like when a ring slips off your finger. Or when food goes down the wrong tube, it slips down the wrong tube. Or, or for those of us who are having trouble with memory, when a thought slips out of our mind. When, when something is carelessly let go, become lost. That's one way you could define a pararine. Now the other way is when a ship has carelessly been allowed to slip past a harbor or a haven. Because the mariner forgot to account for the wind or the tide. So one commentator says this verse is a vivid picture of a ship drifting to destruction because the pilot sleeps while the insidious current sweeps the ship past the harbor until it's wrecked. So Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1, tie up here so you don't invite wreckage. I think the author of Hebrews is a genius to use language like that. Because he later then, in chapter 6, talks about being anchored to Christ, our, our trustworthy and strong anchor. So he says, listen up, tie up here so that you will not drift. Well, what's wrong with drifting? The author tells us. He says, if the punishment for ignoring the first revelation of God was bad, think of how bad it would be if you ignore the second revelation. Hebrews 2, verses 2 through 4. For the message God delivered through angels, that's the first revelation, has always stood firm. And every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. So what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak? God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. So follow the progression, okay? The first revelation, the law, came to humans through angels according to this passage. If people disobeyed, they were punished. Next progression, you've got Jesus announcing the second revelation. This is who God is. It's, it's me. His message was delivered through him first, and then by people who heard him, and then confirmed by signs, miracles, gifts, and the Holy Spirit. Imagine what would happen if we ignore all that. That's what the author is saying. You must remain anchored to Christ because the result, if you don't, is going to be so much worse. We good? Anyone want to disagree? Okay. We could stop there. And I don't think anyone would complain, but the problem is the author of Hebrews keeps going. And he keeps speaking more and more boldly. He says, yes, be anchored to Christ, but don't become complacent. 
Don't become lazy. Don't just stop with an understanding of that anchor, an accepting of that anchor. Don't think the anchor gives you permission just to bob and float and weave through life. Where do we get that? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. The author says there is so much more we would like to say about this, but it's difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. I love that version. Spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. The Greek literally means slothful or sluggish in hearing. Let me ask you this, ask you this, and you can answer by amen, okay? First church, you know we are anchored to Christ, amen? Amen. We are confident in that anchor, amen? And some of us have been anchored to Christ for a long, long time, amen? So here's where I speak boldly to you. For a people knowing that we're anchored, Having been anchored for a long time, decades upon decades, there is a very real risk of spiritual laziness. There is a very real risk of spiritual complacency. Listen to it again, Hebrews 5.11, and we'll go into 12 this time. There's so much more we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basics about God's Word. My roots, my heritage, are from the Kenai Peninsula up in Alaska. It's where my dad's side of the family grew up. You know what's crazy? See the picture there? That's me. And you know what's even crazier? I just, in Google, I typed in James Lehman commercial fishing. And that and another picture of me and my dad came up. I didn't put it. There's a whole bunch of other pictures, but that was kind of scary. So that's me. Uh, Living in Cook Inlet, when my family grew up, they grew up commercial fishing. Fish traps for my grandpa, all the way up to uh, boats like that, 19-foot skiffs and nets. Growing up, I spent a few summers up there fishing, both for my dad and for my uncle. And one of my favorite memories of a time up there was when when I spent a summer in a boat with my cousin. We were fishing our allotted nets, and he's the closest thing to a brother that I had, so we had a blast. And I remember one, one stretch of fishing. We were giving extended hours by the fishing game. That meant that we didn't have to pull our nets out that night at 6 o'clock, but we could fish 24 hours a day. We could keep the nets in. Now, my uncle, who I was fishing for that summer, when we had those opportunities, he took advantage of them. And we were out in the boat for a long, long time. Oftentimes, we would hardly get to shore, have a meal, take our hip boots off. When he would come knocking in, time to go, tide's turning, and we'd have to put the hip boots back on, get the yellow slickers on, get out of the boat, go help the nets turn the tide, and then continue to fish the nets. Well, there was one time my cousin and I, we thought, let's just not even go to shore. Let's just eat the sandwiches we have in our little bag here, and we'll, uh, we'll tie up to the buoy of one of our nets. we got a lot of time. So we did. We tied up to a buoy. You could say we moored to a buoy. We ate our sandwiches, and then we we said, let's take just a breath. And you would be amazed at how comfortable the front of that bow of the boat, with the metal coming together, how comfortable it is when it wraps itself around your tired body. 
we ended up falling asleep. And we awoke to the sound of the corks of the net knocking against the boat. The tide was mid-turn, and we were tangled up in the net. It was a mess. And it would have been so much better had we just paid close attention to what we were doing instead of being complacent. We were moored, but complacent. I believe fully that that is the message that God was and is giving to his people through the book of Hebrews. So what does that look like? What could that look like to be lazy or complacent in our faith? The author gives us several examples. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at some of the ways that we could be lazy in our faith. First, I think the author says, laziness in our faith looks like losing the early passion we had when we initially met Jesus. Losing that first passion. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 through 34. He says, think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful, even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and you were beaten. And sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that would last forever. The risk, the danger in a church like ours, in a church that has a lot of faithful, long-standing Christians, is that we will forget our first passion. We've seen it happen, haven't we? I mean, someone comes to know Christ. There's passion, there's excitement, they're sharing with friends, they're sharing with family, there's baptisms, there's spiritual growth, there's hunger. And then, for some reason, for so many people, if they're not super intentional, The longer they know Christ, the longer they're in the walls of a church, the less that passion is visible. The less the passion is manifested. The passion for Jesus and a transformed life turns more into a passion of keeping the do's and don'ts. It turns from, I was lost, broken, messy, and look at what Christ did for me, into, I don't really want to be around those who are lost broken, messy, because look at what it could do to me. We've seen this happen, haven't we? Losing our early passion. That's one thing that can happen when we become complacent, spiritually sluggish, lazy in our faith, even though we know who we're anchored to. Now, lest you feel like I'm beating the sheep with the shepherd's rod, know that this is a challenge for me too. My regular prayer is, God, give me back the passion of my early faith. Give me back the excitement of that 18-year-old kid who found out what Jesus really was for him. That's a prayer for me, regularly. Losing our first passion. I think the next step after losing that early passion is the risk of getting stuck in continual sin. We're still in chapter 10, verses 26 to 29. Dear friends, the author says, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth that there's no longer any sacrifice that will co- that there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There's only the terrible expectation of God's judgment 
and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God, have treated the blood of the covenant, which made us holy, as if it were common and unholy, and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. Now maybe, maybe it's not blatant, continual sin, like spousal abuse or or habitual robbery. Maybe it's a sin of arrogance. Maybe it's a sin of judgmentalism. Maybe we don't even set out to deliberately continue doing that, but we simply fail to address it when the Holy Spirit nudges us or when someone we trust and love nudges us. Do you hear the importance the author is placing on addressing continual sin in our life? He says, if we don't, it's like trampling the Son of God. It's like treating the blood of the covenant as common, as unholy. It's like insulting and disdaining the Holy Spirit. Remember the author's warning in chapter 2. How much worse? Now, did you hear the warning in verse 27? There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. Jump down to verse 30 and 31. For we know the one who said, I will take revenge. I will pay them back. He also said, the Lord will judge his own people. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. God does not take continual sin lightly. So we may be anchored to Christ knowing he's the only way to get to the Father, but that does not give us a right to not pursue holiness. That does not give us a right to not address the areas in our lives that God wants us to address. Many years ago, Brennan Manning wrote this. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny them, deny him with their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Let us not get stuck in denying our anchor by our lifestyle. Continual sin, losing our passion. Now the third risk the author states about being anchored, but being spiritually sluggish or slothful, is the real danger of walking away from the faith. We're in chapter 6 now, verses 4 through 6. The author says, For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. Oh, man. Oh, man. This passage could open up a Pandora's box of the discussion of once saved, always saved versus you can lose your salvation. I'm not going to open that box today because I don't believe the author of Hebrews was opening that box. If you want to wrestle with that, go to Romans chapter 5, read 5 through 8, ask God for insight and discernment, and trust that he's going to give it to you. The author of Hebrews 
This passage is best understood knowing its context. We can't nail down the exact date this, this book, this letter was written, but almost every scholar believes it was written during a time of major persecution of the church. So the people were being arrested, they were being beaten, and then they were given an opportunity to ease the torture if they would renounce their faith. If they would publicly declare no more allegiance to Christ. So imagine going through the long process of being catechized in the church, being baptized, being taught the fundamentals, and imagine tasting the goodness of the gathered community of faith and the goodness of the Holy Spirit. That's what verses 4 and 5 are about. Now imagine, in order to save your own neck, publicly renouncing it. To the watching world, who does this say your Lord is? Who does this say will save you? You, yourself, not Jesus. Talk about taking an axe to the tree of the credibility of God's gathered saints. Talk about taking an axe to the tree of Jesus himself. No wonder the author talks about it being like nailing Christ back to the cross as if you were to deny him and then return. That is what I believe the author is talking about in this section as he writes about the impossibility of bringing somebody back to the faith. Any of you familiar with the Latin legend, Quo Vadis? It tells of how during the persecution of Nero, Peter was caught. Okay? The legend says that Peter's courage failed and he fled for his life. Down the Appian Way he went, all courage gone, and suddenly there was a figure standing in his path. When he looked up, it was Jesus himself. Domine, said Peter, Quo Vadis, Lord, where are you going? Peter, Jesus replied, I'm going back to Rome to be crucified again in your stead this time. The legend says Peter, shamed into heroism, returned to Rome and died a martyr's death. If we become spiritually sluggish, slothful, lazy in our faith, if we lose our passion, if it seeps into continual sin, there's a very real chance that when things get hard, We'll walk away. We'll deny the faith. So the author of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 1 says, don't. He says, more up to, tie up to something that's going to hold you. Don't drift. Now let's talk practical. How do we go about preventing this drifting? Preventing this spiritual slothfulness? I believe the author gives us some answers at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. So we're in verse 12, the second half of it, in chapter 5. The author says, instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's Word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Chapter 6. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. You don't need further instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so, God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. 
These verses have several layers to them, each answering the question of, of how we prevent spiritual laziness. The first layer is the obvious one. We must move from milk to meat. We must move from milk to meat. Now, this milk-meat conversation is not unique to Hebrews in the New Testament. Other authors write about it. Peter, speaking positively about it, said, Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow in the full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have a taste of the Lord's kindness. He's speaking to baby Christians. Crave that spiritual milk. Now Paul is talking to more seasoned Christians when he said, I had to feed you with milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger and you are still not ready. That's 1 Corinthians 3, verse 2. Moving from milk to meat. It was interesting to me to read the list of fundamental teachings of the church in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. It actually gives us an insight as to what the earliest church thought of as entry-level teachings, as first truths that must be taught. Repenting from dead works, you know, works that we think will save us. Putting our faith in God. Baptism. Laying on of hands. Resurrection of the dead. Eternal judgment. When I read this, I had to ask myself, if any of us in here were asked Hey, what are the fundamental teachings of the church? How many of that list would make our answer? And then as soon as I said that, I had to ask myself, am I really doing my job? And then as soon as I said that, I had to ask myself, well, is it solely my job to teach these things? Is it just the senior pastor's job to make sure the teaching goes from milk to meat, from fundamentals to maturity? And if it's not, then I have to ask us, are we stunting the growth of the church by not multiplying leaders who will teach and teach others to teach? I'm just asking questions out loud right now. I'm not looking for easy answers, although I do think the author of Hebrews answers one of those questions. Second half of verse 12 in chapter 5, he says, you have been believers for so long now that you should be teaching others. Let me let you in on something, okay? One of my biggest challenges that I face is what I share from the front. From the front. How much, how deep do I push? How far do I push you guys? In our body, body we have some real long-standing Christians, seasoned saints, And we also have some very baby Christians, new in the faith. So I ask myself, if we're to grow new believers and still give long-timers food, how do we do that? Do we just give milk from the pulpit and then push meat during formation hour? And I would say that may not be the best option because, let's be honest, a small majority, a small minority, most people don't come to formation hour. So should I push meat from the pulpit and then encourage milk to be had in small groups or in one-on-one relationships? These are things I wrestle with. I could probably keep asking questions, but ultimately I don't think the author of Hebrews is is laying down a methodology as to how to uh, disciple, a methodology of the gathered church teaching time. I think he's just flat out saying growth needs to happen. If we are to not drift, 
If we are to stay clear of being sluggish Christians, we must seek solid food. And I would say that the large part of the responsibility of that falls on you. Not me. I remember Ron Miller talking once in a sermon about the preparation he put in to the sermon. And he talked about it being like fine piece of meat and, and potatoes and a four-course meal. And he said he just ate it up during a week. And he said the amount that he could give back on Sunday mornings was little chewed up bits and pieces from what he had gotten. I would agree with that. And I would say that the major responsibility of your spiritual growth falls on you. Kind of harsh. Maybe not what you like hearing, but truth nonetheless. Let's get back on track. A little bit ago, I asked this. Well, no, I didn't ask this, but I'm going to ask this now. If the list of fundamentals that we talked about in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 was milk for spiritual babies... What constitutes solid food? Here again, I think the author is kind enough to answer that. Chapter 5, verse 14. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Solid food, he says, involves teaching about what is wrong and what is right, what is good, what is evil. At least if we did a quick reading of that text, that's what I think we would get out of it. But if we're to dig a little bit deeper, I think the author would push us. We're looking for solid food, for what leads us to maturity. Okay? Listen to verses 13 and 14 of chapter 5. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Verse 13 of my translation says, milk is for people who don't know how to do what is right. That's an oversimplistic uh, um, definition of that, an oversimplistic translation. Other versions say that it's for people who are not acquainted with teachings about righteousness, who are unskilled in the words of righteousness. Almost every time in the New Testament when this word is written, it is speaking about God's righteousness. It could also be translated as God's justice. So what does that mean then? It means God's longing to put the world to right. And as part of that, to put humans back to right. It means seeing justice roll like the prophet Amos said. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I think our author of Hebrews is saying that people who are moving towards maturity have the ability to see the world, the unrightness of it, the unjustness of it, and they see God's desire to make it right, and they see God's desire to make it just. Listen to the difference. Someone living on milk alone reads the story that was on KHQ.com a couple of weeks ago about the rise of homelessness on the streets of Spokane. And they say, that's too bad. They should work harder and get a job. 
Someone who has the eyes of God and the, and the idea of God putting things to right reads that same story and sees a neglected, overlooked people group, many of whom are stuck in a cycle of poverty who cannot, by their own pulling up of bootstraps, who cannot, by working harder, get out of that cycle. This person moving towards maturity says, what can I do to help bring about God's rightness in this situation? A person complacent, satisfied with spiritual milk. Here's the story of somebody getting beat up, okay? And then the perpetrator only getting a a few days in jail as a punishment. And they say justice wasn't served. Whereas a person moving towards maturity, craving spiritual meat, looks at that same story and grieves the man who did the beating recognizing that he probably grew up fatherless, not taught how to respect another human being, and never loved by a father the way our Heavenly Father wants to love somebody. A person craving spiritual meat says, can this person get a vision of the Father's love? A person who is content with spiritual milk, a baby living off of Uh, just what they hear, hears the horrors of human trafficking and may even see the connections with the porn industry to trafficking and they say, I won't look at those magazines or those websites anymore and you know what, those those women ought to have more self-worth than that. Whereas a person moving towards maturity hears that same horror story and sees the devaluing of human life sees the devaluing of humanity, sees a humanity that God looked at and said, this is very good. And that person says, who can I contact? Who can I make aware? What do I need to do to help God put this back to right? You see the difference? Hear me on this, First Church. I am not saying that your actions save you. But I am saying that our actions are evidence. They're proof. They are confirmation that growth towards maturity is taking place. God wants us to get to this point. Yes, we need to talk about salvation. We need to talk about baptism. We need to talk about everything that was talked about in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. But God also wants us to be pushed towards setting the world right with him. Not just listening to messages about it, but actually doing it. A quicker maturity and recognition of these issues. Why do I say that? Chapter 5, verse 14. Solid food is for, the, is for those who are mature, who through training have the skills to recognize the difference. Through training. Constant practice is what the ESV says. The Greek says through practice or habit. Do you want to keep from drifting? Do you want to keep from being a spiritually sluggish, slothful follower of Christ? Then your life must be moving towards maturity, which is evidenced by a habit, constant training of seeing the world through God's eyes and helping him put it back to right. I'll let you in on a secret. When you do that, you're going to struggle. And you're going to fail. And it's going to feel at times like you're beating your head against a brick wall because following Christ is messy. And there's no way around that. It's in that mess that we need to seek what the author of Hebrews tells us to seek. 
chapter 10, verse 35 and 36. The author says, So do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that has been promised. We must keep a confident trust and seek a patient endurance. A confident trust and a patient endurance. As I wrap up this message, I really want you to hear my heart. I have wrestled this week as to how best to present these texts. The author speaks very harshly to his listeners. And at times it may have seemed like I was speaking harshly to you. Hear my heart on this. I say these things because I love you. And because whether or not this stuff is true of us, drifting and becoming slothful, sluggish, lazy Christians is a real, genuine threat for a church like ours. I want to point out what the author says to his listeners in chapter 6, verse 9 and following. He begins, dear friends. He begins, beloved. This is the only time in the entire book of Hebrews he addresses his listeners in such an endearing tone. So he's just gotten done speaking harshly to them, and then he says, beloved. Even though we're talking this way, we really don't think it applies to you. We're confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love by caring for other believers, as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. First church, we've been around for 123 years, and we've had a lot of things said about us. One of those things is actually really, really good. Okay? We've, been, uh, we've been called caring and loving of those here. We've been accused of, being, of loving like we're a family. God sees this, and I would say keep doing it. As the author of Hebrews says, keep loving each other as long as life lasts. You guys do that well. Very well. So if you see somebody on the verge of drifting, lovingly bring them back. We know our anchor. We know our call to move to maturity. And we know our call to love. May God help us in each of those areas. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, I think there are times in our study of Scripture where, um, where we're just kind of hitting the teeth. And perhaps this morning is one of those times. Perhaps something that you have said through your word has struck a chord with us, has uh, spurred us towards action. 
Perhaps something you have said in here has reminded us of something that needs to change or something we need to do. Or maybe it simply reminded us of your desire to see us holy and to pursue holiness. Maybe it's been an encouragement this morning. Father, whatever it is, we trust that your word has spoken to each individual that has heard it this morning. And we ask, Lord, that your word would not produce emptiness but that it would produce fruit in our life. We ask, Lord, that it would help us know what to believe and what that belief should lead us to. God, you are our Father. We are your children, and we want to bring a smile to your face. We want you to look down on us and say, I am proud of you. And God, I thank you that you do that whether we've got more tally marks on the good side or the evil side, you love us enough to come to earth and sacrifice yourself for us so that we could be brought back to you. We claim that, Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We ask that you'd help us remain anchored, moored, not to drift. We also ask that you would push us to maturity. May we do that based out of a love for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.